0: to the My Breast, My Health podcast. My name is Tasha Gandhi and I'm a breast cancer surgeon with over a decade's worth of experience. I created this podcast as a place where those who have been affected by breast cancer can connect with each other, share experiences and learn from each other's life stories. I will also have conversations with experts in the field of medicine as well as the health and wellness space. So if you want to learn more about this topic, then this is the place to be. The aim of this podcast is simple, to create a community where everyone feels empowered to help each other and support one another. This is because I truly believe that together we are stronger. I'm really happy to spend this time with you. So let's start build a community. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. If you already subscribed to the show, thank you so much. I'm really, really grateful. And if you're here for the first time, then make sure you subscribe to the show, because that way you won't miss any of the future episodes. Today I'll be talking to Dr. Peter Davis, who is a breast pathologist. The role of a pathologist is extremely vital in the diagnosis of breast cancer. Have you ever thought how a breast cancer diagnosis is made just by taking a biopsy or sample of breast tissue? you'd be forgiven to think that it simply involves taking the specimen and looking at it down a microscope. In fact, the whole process is actually a little bit more complicated than that. In this conversation, we explore in more detail what happens when the specimen arrives in his lab and the complex steps that need to be taken before that piece of breast tissue is ready to be inspected by him through the lens of a microscope. It was an absolutely fascinating conversation and one that highlights the amount of work that takes place behind the scenes, which we don't always appreciate. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did interviewing Dr. Peter Davis. Hi, Peter. Hello there. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. Pleasure. You are a consultant pathologist.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: For those who don't know what a pathologist does, could you explain to us what it is that you do?
1: Okay, so I'm a doctor, medically trained just like all other doctors. So I have the same training as um, as other kinds of doctor. And then I disappear off into pathology training, which after coming out of medical school is probably a sort of three years of junior doctorship and then uh, another six years of training in histopathology, then continually learning as you go along, basically. But what we do is we are particular kinds of pathologists who study disease by looking at tissue and cells, and there are lots of different kinds of pathologists. Um, microbiologists look at infection, um, hematologists look at blood. Right. Uh, we look at tissue, and okay. by looking at it down the microscope, we work out what's going on in a patient's uh, body. We do that through small samples that might be taken through a narrow needle or sometimes a punch biopsy from the skin, and then also in bigger surgical specimens. And the idea is that uh, we look at tissue, examine it with the naked eye, dissect a specimen if it's a big specimen, and turn that into something that we can look at down the microscope. And from that, we aim to work out in essence what the diagnosis is and what does it mean? And the what does it mean bit is something that we spend an awful lot more time doing these days. In the past, pathology reports would be quite simple things.
0: Right, and now they're a bit complicated.
1: Now they're much more complicated <laughs> and takes a lot more time. Right. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to work out what is the likely prognosis? What can we tell um, oncologists and surgeons about what they've done? Is a tumour, for example, completely out? Does the surgeon need to go back and take a bit more tissue maybe? Right. Um Does the tumour have features that make it more aggressive? And how likely is uh, the tumour to recur? Okay. And increasingly, oncologists want to know what sorts of factors there are uh, in a tumour that will guide how it's likely to respond both to traditional drugs that they've always used, chemotherapy, and then some newer agents that are coming online now.
0: Right. So you play an extremely important role, not only in the diagnosis of a disease, and that is essentially anything where a tissue specimen has been taken from the patient, because that is the thing that we send to you for analysis, Mm. but also you help us formulate a best treatment plan for the patient, because you tell us exactly what we're dealing with, which will in turn help us decide how to treat them. Is that correct?
1: That's right. That's
0: right. So let's have a scenario. Mm. A patient comes to the breast clinic um, and they will get assessed they'll get clinically assessed so in a triple assessment clinic mm-hmm. they get clinically assessed they have a lump or they have an area of abnormality in the breast which we want to investigate further so we do a biopsy mm-hmm. this specimen is then put into formalin and sent to the lab okay. so you can tell me why we need to put that in mm-hmm. formalin mm-hmm. but also if a patient has um, a cancer which we remove in surgery, as you said before, that surgical specimen is then also sent to the lab to you yeah. to, to look at whether that's a lumpectomy or if it's uh, a breast having had a mastectomy, All of, whatever it is that we remove from mm. a patient we send to you. Mm. What happens to that specimen when it arrives in your lab?
1: So yeah we we receive a specimen uh in formalin as you say and and formalin sort of rather lightly call it pickling fluid is basically the first thing that it does is right. to preserve tissue it's not like vinegar it's horrible to smell um it gets right up your nose yeah, it's it it's is quite, quite nasty stuff pungent isn't it um, but what it does do is it very very quickly preserves that tissue okay and so it fixes it it fixes it Right. and what we mean in particular with relevance to breast cancer with fixation is not just preserving the tissue physically, but also fixing or stopping the turning over of living cells. I see. And okay. when cells are alive, they divide and they grow. And that's something that normal tissue does. But obviously, that's something that cancer does a lot, mm-hmm. because one of the problems with cancer is that cells grow too quickly.
0: So that's the, one of the definitions of cancer, isn't it? it exactly. It continues to multiply and it doesn't, it doesn't die.
1: That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, one of the things that we need to know about cancer is how aggressive it is. Okay. And to do that, we give it what we call a grade. And a grade is really a measure, if you like, a reproducible measure of how aggressive that tumour is. And one of the things that is its aggressiveness is the speed at which it's dividing. Okay. So, you so, stop both.
0: So, the formalin stops that?
1: It does. It stops those cells dividing quickly. And why we need that to to happen really quickly is because one of the things we look at down the microscope is a thing called a mitosis. And that's a thing that a cell does that we can see, which is where the chromosomes are actually dividing to turn one cell into two. So it really helps us to see how many cells in a tumour or a sample of a tumour have a mitosis in them. If we don't fix a sample quick enough, a lot of those mitoses Continue. continue. Right. and then they become invisible.
0: Even when it's outside of that Even body.
1: outside the body. Right, okay. Even outside the body. Which is a bit of a thing to get your head around, really, yeah, isn't it, is it? a bit. What the formalin does is it actually acts almost like a snapshot.
0: Right. So it, so it freezes it, it in time. Freezes
1: that moment in time. Right.
0: We talked about why we put the specimens in formalin. Mm. And then I guess the aim is for you to be able to look at these underneath the microscope, yeah, and to make them into slides. That's right. So then, what happens um, to these specimens after you've taken them out of the formalin?
1: Sure. So we, we get them uh, in the in the lab, and if they're a uh, it's a core biopsy, a very small core of breast tissue that we've received, then that's very simple. We just put that uh, into what we call a, a cassette, which is like a little holder, and. What we need to do is we need to be able to cut off that core, a very thin slice, um, a little bit like um, a, a meat slicer at a supermarket deli counter. Um, but, of course, it's very tiny, so we need to have a way that we can hold it. Because you can't hold it with your fingers because you cut your finger as well.
0: Right, yeah? of course, yeah. Yeah. yeah so slim.
1: what we need to do is we, we need to find some way of holding that tissue firm. And the way we do it is by solidifying it into a block of wax, paraffin wax. Right,
0: that makes sense. Yeah. So you embed it into the wax. So we
1: embed it into the wax. Yeah. Um, but what we need to make sure is that the wax doesn't just surround the tissue, but yeah. actually goes all the way through it. Because otherwise, when we cut it, the tissue jumps out and it keeps okay. jumping out. Um, it's like trying to embed a, uh, something like a, a, like a grape in wax. Okay.
0: You need it I to hold
1: that. it rather than just surrounding it. So we have to go through a chemical process that dehydrates the tissue, impregnates it with wax, and then by the time that's happened, the tissue has actually been a little bit chemically changed in that it's still the shape that it was, it's still microscopically made of the same stuff, but it's chemically changed so it's ready to be cut, so it's dry enough to cut, thoroughly dehydrated, um, and then it's ready to stain. Because imagine if you cut a very, very thin slice through something delicate like human tissue, um, it's so thin that it's almost translucent. You can Mm. see through it. It's much thinner than a human hair at that point. So
0: you sliced them that finely?
1: That finely.
0: And how many slices would you get from a biopsy?
1: Um, Well, we have to be careful. We have to make sure that each slice we cut adds value because sometimes we need to do more tests on a piece of tissue than we initially think. Usually we can get at least 16 or so slices yeah, out, of, out of a piece of tissue. Right. It depends how big the core biopsy is of course, Okay, um, but usually we can get enough out to do the work we need to do and keep some in file for future use just right. in case we need to. So we cut these very thin slices and they're the things that we then s- slide onto a piece of glass called a slide and the tissue is so thin that it sticks to the glass. But what we need to do is um, do a few more things to it before we can actually look at it. We need to stain it in some contrasting colours so we can see the difference between the various bits of tissue that make up breast. And that often looks like various shades of pink and purple. Yeah, very pretty. Yeah, it's nice. It's yeah. nice. It's, it's, uh, it's amazing, actually. The human body is um, a fascinating thing. Yeah. And it's actually quite a beautiful thing, too. Yeah.
0: We so that's, that's the H&E stain?
1: That's what we call the H&E, which is hematoxylin and eosin, which yeah. is just the name of the, t- the two kinds of ink we use. Okay. And then we put another thin piece of glass over the top to protect it, and that's the slide.
0: And how long does that whole process take?
1: Um, it takes somewhere between 24 and 48 hours. Okay. Um, it depends on the size of the piece of tissue that we've received because the fixing process with the pickling fluid, the formalin, takes a little while to get seep through tissue, okay. so a very thin pieces of tissue like a core biopsy will fix very quickly, but if we receive a surgical specimen, a big excision, that's going to take quite some time to pickle.
0: And how can you tell whether it's ready?
1: Uh, because it will feel solid okay. um, and it starts to look... Um, before we stain it, of course, it starts yep. to look a kind of a homogenous kind of brownish colour. It looks a bit cooked, if you like. Okay, which so is it's essentially all what up. it is. Yeah, it shrivels up.
0: So it's in formalin, then you embed it in wax. Yep. Then you slice them yep. um, to very finely to, you know to fine slices, and then you stain them. That's right. Um, And then you put them on slide, and then you look at it underneath the the microscope. And that's when everything becomes clear for you.
1: This is when the magic happens, yeah, 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 this is, well, the misconception I think about pathology is that we are um, very clever, and we can, (laughs) well, thank you very much, (laughs) Uh, but we're very clever, we can look at tissue under the microscope and immediately make a diagnosis.
0: Now, (laughs) it's not quite true.
1: Not quite true. For some diagnoses, it is true. Some diagnoses are very characteristic and very straightforward. Very straightforward. And I can look at it and I can say, this is a malignant tumour and this is its name and this is how it's likely to behave. But often we're dealing with um, things that are precursors to cancer or even precursors to the precursor. So they may be changes that you see in breasts that are not quite normal but aren't malignant.
0: Okay, so it's a bit more complicated than, you know, That's right. that we, we may think. That's right. So how can you tell whether a cell or, well, you know, a specimen contains cells that are cancerous?
1: Okay. Um, well, the earliest changes in a cell that are, are moving towards cancer are probably things we can't see. Um, okay. They're probably mutations that we have ways to pick up through looking at the genetics of the cell. But uh, in terms of daily diagnosis, mm-hmm. that's too small for us to sure. see. Yeah. Uh, so what we're looking for is changes in the cell that change what the cell actually looks like and the way it grows. And breast tissue is made up of a number of different components. There's a, a fatty stroma, which is essentially uh, the tissue in the background that makes up the bulk of the breast, which right. is fat. Right. And then within it, it has tubes. What we call ducts, um, and it has lobules, and lobules are the parts that basically produce the milk that then moves that down the ducts, the ducts. That, that go goes through the ducts. through the nipple Exactly, yeah. exactly. There are other elements of tissue within the breast, but those are the basic components. Sure. And each one of those can develop benign proliferative processes, which is where they grow mm-hmm. too much. Right. And then when that growth becomes uncontrolled. That's when cancer can start.
0: So when you look at them underneath the microscope, there are you know certain characteristics that make up a cell, like mm. the nucleus and mm. the cytoplasm and all of you mm. know, these terms come to haunt me from my medical school days. But um, you can decide whether a cell uh, is, I guess, more active than normal mm. by looking at certain things. Is that right? That's right.
1: That's right. So the cells... Um, individually can start to look wrong. When a cell is growing too fast, it grows from its nucleus because its nucleus provides it with the instructions to grow or not grow. So nuclei tend to become bigger and they tend to uh, exhibit disorderly growth, which is one of the characteristics of cancer. So the nucleus starts to look irregular because it's no longer growing in a tidy, tidy manner. Right. We talked a little bit about mitosis earlier, mm-hmm. And we can start to see more mitoses because the cells are dividing more. So on an individual level, there are characteristics that tells me that a cell is growing out of control.
0: And you can look and you can see that underneath the microscope. That's right. Yeah, That's and right. it's quite obvious, isn't it?
1: It is, it is. Um but we also see uh, changes in groups of cells. So normally a group of cells will produce a structure. So they will all be growing because they're programmed to grow, to form a duct. Or they may be cells within a lobule that are programmed by genetics to grow a duct. Mm-hmm. And when they start to go a bit wrong, you can have too many ducts, for example. Right. Or you can have a duct that has too many cells within its wall, so it starts to expand, and it starts to have too many cells piled on top of each other.
0: Right. So it's a disorganisation of cellular growth. Exactly, that becomes quite obvious to see exactly. underneath the microscope. Yeah. So, um, so that's how you can tell the difference between a cancer versus a benign mm. specimen. Mm. Um, when we give a diagnosis to patients, you know, it contains lots of terms and words that are quite medical mm. and can be quite confusing. So mm. I thought um it might be a good thing to maybe dissect those mm. terminologies a bit more. Mm. Um the first things that we would say to a patient if they had breast cancer would be the type of breast cancer. Mm. So it'll either be, you know, a ductal carcinoma mm. or lobular carcinoma. What are the commonest types of breast cancer that you see and what, mm. you know, what are the other non the other cancers that are not that obvious and not that common. Because
1: mm.
0: mm. there are quite many.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, the the main groups um, in the traditional sort of anatomical way of looking at this is that there are ductal carcinomas, Mm -hmm. and those are tumours which are derived from the duct. So if we we go from having a normal duct, growing normally, as it should be, to too much proliferation within the duct, to uncontrolled proliferation within the duct, and if that gets to the point where that's growing a tumour, it becomes a ductal carcinoma Now, ductal carcinoma is a good way of looking at um, the other thing that people might have heard of is it's in situ so ductal carcinoma in situ means a malignant proliferation within the duct but it hasn't yet got the ability to break out of the duct because the error in its genetics that grows from a mutation that allows it to do that hasn't happened yet so, so it's confined all that within the duct. growth becomes confined within a duct. Okay, so that's a
0: ductal, carcinoma, that's ductal carcinoma, in situ. carcinoma in situ, DCIS, really.
1: DCIS. Now, okay. that's in situ in that it's not broken out into the surrounding breast, but what it does tend to do is creep along the tube. Right, along the ducts. Along the ducts. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the characteristics of DCIS. Um, it tends to be associated with calcification often. Not always, that's the problem. Um, okay. So that can be one of the ways that you guys follow it. Once a ductal carcinoma has moved beyond that, um, it can develop the ability to invade. Right.
0: That is where a cancer is known to be an invasive cancer or an invasive ductal carcinoma. That's right. Okay. Um, So you can tell whether a cancer is an invasive cancer by virtue of it going through the ducts. That's right. Beyond the ducts or the confines of the ducts.
1: Exactly. Into the breaking out into that surrounding fatty tissue. Now, lobular carcinoma is a pretty similar process, but it grows it's thought, from cells within the lobules. So these two tumours, when they are at a relatively early stage, they look quite distinctive. And for a long time they look distinctive. And the way we tell one from the other is by looking for what they seem to be trying to do, looking at what they look like they've come from. So an invasive tumour that looks like it's forming tubes... Is a ductal. Is probably a ductal carcinoma. Right. Whereas an invasive lobular carcinoma, a tumour that's made of lots of little cells that look like the ones you see in a lobule, is probably a lobular carcinoma. Okay. The problem comes when tumours get more advanced and more aggressive, they can start to look worse and worse down the microscope to the point where it becomes really difficult to work out. Distinguish between the two? Just by eyeball to okay. distinguish between the two.
0: So then what do you do to distinguish between the two? You do other stains?
1: We do other stains. I mean, we have, um, when we talk about stains, what we're talking about is the, uh, first of all, the H&E stain, which okay. shows us morphology. Um, but we have certain things that we can do where we use uh, what we call immunohistochemistry. Or, or IHC. Immuno, or AHC, all abbreviations for the same thing. And what we're doing there is we're using, in essence, an antibody which um, has a an ink on it or an enzyme on it that activates an ink. Now that antibody, people might think of antibodies as something you see in the infection, and you might have an antibody to nuts, yeah. which is why you have a nut allergy. Nut allergy right? yeah? Yeah. So we're borrowing that reaction, and we're saying we want to know if this unidentified cell that might be ductal, might be lobular, has a particular protein on it that's too small to see with our eyes, even with a microscope. But we want to know if it's there, because if it's there it's more likely to be lobular. So we try an antibody on it and we'll try a range of antibodies on it. And the antibody that picks up that particular protein will activate an enzyme which lights up an ink.
0: Right, and so then suddenly you can tell.
1: that cell changes colour. So we look for the cells that have changed colour and we say if a certain proportion of them have changed colour, they're positive for that particular protein, yeah? Yep. And that allows us to say, more likely than not, these particular cells that we're looking at have probably come from a lobule rather than a duct.
0: Right. So that's extremely helpful for you to de- to decide whether it's ductal or lobular. It is. Okay. It is.
1: That's it's really- not always as clear cut as that makes it sound, um, because tumours don't always behave the way the books say they do, which is why sometimes test results aren't entirely comparable and you have to look at them in the setting of an individual patient.
0: Sure. Or it might change from a the core biopsy might say something, yeah. but then, you know, after the patient's had an operation and you look at the specimen in its entirety, you might change
1: Exactly, the because core, you have more
0: specimen to look at.
1: That's right. I mean, the core is uh, only ever a tiny sample of yeah. a tumour yeah. and the core, when you think about it, might be 12 millimetres long, one millimetre wide, It's not but really the tumour might be 35 millimetres across.
0: So that's much, you know, sometimes more helpful. Well, it can be. can be. It can be. Yeah, and I think um, I also warn my patients that when you get a diagnosis of something at the time of your core biopsy, looking specifically at grading, for example, mm. we can talk about that in a minute. Um, that grading can change depending mm. on uh, it depends on the final histology of that specimen That's because right. you are looking at only a small area of that cancer, mm. which is the biopsy. Mm. Um, and you might give that a grade two, for example, mm. but that grading might be upgraded to a grade three mm. based on the outcome of that specimen. Absolutely, yeah. So we know that there are three grades, mm. one, two, and three.
1: Mm.
0: What are the differences in those three?
1: So we look at what are what is a grade, I guess? Sure, yeah. Um, well, a grade, a grade is a way of trying to identify some features that we can see down the microscope that allow us to reproducibly identify three different sets of likely outcomes for patients. So we try to identify a group who are likely to do quite well, a group who have a more aggressive tumour and a group that have a more aggressive tumour still. Um, And to do that, it's a product of a lot of research that's happened over the years that's identified features that we can use for this. But what we look at is we look at the degree to which a tumour makes tubes or tubules, um, and we give that a score. So if the tumour is making lots of tubules, um, then we give it a one because it's a good feature. If it's not making many tubules, we give it a three because it's a bad feature. So it goes in that direction, one, two, three. We then look at what we call, and this is another technical term, pleomorphism, which is really um, the irregularity of the nucleus. So nuclei of of tumours, as we said before, nuclei of tumours that are quite aggressive tend to be quite irregular. And this is a way of saying one is very nice, neat and tidy, almost like normal. Two is somewhere in the middle and three is nasty, irregular looking, angry nuclei. So it's more pleomorphic. More pleomorphic. And then the last thing we look at is mitotic activity. And that is measured by the number of mitoses you see per a fixed area and that requires you to calibrate your microscope so you know you're always measuring a fixed area so everybody's range that you use to count is slightly different depending on what kind of microscope they've got but we all calibrate our microscopes so that we measure the same area and then it's just a matter of counting a mitosis so
0: the more mitosis you see the more aggressive that exactly
1: so not many mitoses is a one lots of mitoses is a three okay so you look at those three we do, factors, yeah. and then we put those together, and then the number that we get then affects whether you're in grade one, two, or three. So the higher the number, the higher the grade.
0: Right, and I guess that's a surrogate to how aggressive a cancer might be.
1: It is to a degree. Um, it is only um, it is only one way of looking at cancer. Of course, mm-hmm. there are other prognostic scales. That look at the um, mutations that tumours have, um, and use that to put people into different groups, right. like the outcome. Um, there are also uh, scoring systems that involve both pathological factors and things like nodal count—how many how many nodes a tumour might have spread to. Um, so there are other ways. Other of other measuring. factors that
0: yeah, might yeah. determine whether um, a patient's cancer is more aggressive than yeah. someone else's, because mm-hmm. of course we. Treat patients depending on their cancer. So somebody's cancer will be very different to another person's cancer, and their treatment will be entirely different.
1: Yeah, I mean we're moving um, we're moving from an age when cancer therapy was was quite mechanical. It was about digging it out and then poisoning the person and the tumour, and uh, you kind of hoped that the tumour would would. Be killed uh, quite quickly, but what we're moving now is we've moved through into much less toxic chemotherapy regimes um, and specialised treatments, um, immunotherapy, yeah. um, you know, new treatments that are coming on stream, more targeted, really. that are much much more targeted, yeah. and they really are targeted at the tumour rather than t- the tumour and the person.
0: Right. Yeah. No, that's very that's very true. So, another kind of factor that we look at when we Determine how best to treat a patient mm. is whether the cancer expresses hormone receptors. Mm. So, you know, a, a cancer might be what's called ER positive, which is estrogen receptor positive, PR positive, which is progesterone, mm. um, and there's another receptor called the HER2 receptor. Mm. Can you explain a bit more about these receptors sure. and why they sure. are important?
1: Yeah, so we know, um, we know that uh, a lot of breast cancers are driven by um, uh, response to hormones and they will often, but not always, express estrogen receptors yes. and progesterone receptors. So that's the ER and PR exactly. to abbreviate and them. Those tumors are being fed, if you like, by estrogen and progesterone, which opens the ability to either select use drugs to either selectively block that drive Um, or actually to to modulate the hormonal environment itself. So um, it opens a therapeutic option for those patients who have enough responsiveness to oestrogen and progesterone. So what we have to do as pathologists is we have to use some of those uh, IHC, or Mm immunotests, to try to identify uh, how positive... um, a tumour is for oestrogen receptors and progesterone receptors. And we have another scoring system that we use for that. We like scoring systems. Um, (laughs) They give us reproducible ways of doing things. And so what we'll do is we'll look at... There's a lot of counting involved as a pathologist. We'll look at uh, a a sample of cells within that tumour and we'll assess how many of them are staining and uh, to what strength. Now, at the moment, that's all done by human eye, which means you have to regularly... Recalibrate yourself um, and check that you're scoring reproducibly. And we have to check that we're uh, scoring against positive and negative controls, right. so we know what a negative stain looks like and what a positive stain looks like. Um, but what we're trying to do, and this is sort of at the forefront of technology, is trying to teach computers how to do that.
0: So AI.
1: AI. And this is this is where actually AI has a lot of. Um, possibility within within pathology because yeah i know for a lot of us we 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 would probably like to think that a a highly trained doctor was assessing our tumor um so would i but highly trained doctors get tired and machines don't get tired yeah so Uh, maybe
0: they perhaps maybe more accurate because fatigue doesn't come into it
1: exactly they can be accurate they can be potentially quicker now a lot of research is going into this at the moment and um the results are actually very, very good. Now, if you can be better than a tired human, uh, why wouldn't you do why it? Why wouldn't you do it? So it's it's certainly something which is on the cusp, okay. um, well, and really that sort of technology is is where we where we tend to be where we're, where we're going. Obviously, a lot of the decision making and interpretation sure. still has to be done by human. Yeah. but the actual counting can so be automated. kind
0: of the automated tasks that yeah. you pathologists do can be delegated to exactly to, to a machine. Exactly. exactly. So how? Um, So we will get, you know, an ER score of Mm -hmm. 8 out of 8 or 7 out of Mm 8 or 3 out of 8 or Mm -hmm. 0 out of Mm 8. How do you determine whether, uh, uh, you know, the estrogen receptor positivity is 8 out of 8 versus 3 versus 0?
1: So this is basically uh, counting and Precisely. how many so how the, well there are a number of different ways of doing it right um the quick score or all red score yeah um it has two names is is it relatively quick and what it looks at is it looks at the percentage of cells which stain um uh weakly strongly um, or moderately um and each one of those gets a score and the score the two together so you might say uh, you might score if you have less than one percent of cells staining it scores a 1. Uh, if you have 100%, 4 or 5. Anyway, half, okay, right. half. And the other half comes from the intensity. Right. Um, and basically what we do is we check uh, the intensity of the cell, the cell staining and the percentage that are staining combined, combined becomes that, gives that us score. the 8. Okay. Now where we set the cutoff is 2 and 3. Yes. So 2 is regarded as negative, 3 is regarded as positive. Now 3 is still very weak staining. So you, say, um, you call it weekly positive. But we call it weekly positive. Yeah. And those are the kind of cases where there may be some sort of discussion with the oncologist, so right. you know, which, which way they think is the best way to proceed. The right. alternative way of doing it is um, to look for less than or greater than 1% of staining of any intensity. And that usually aligns with the 2-3 cutoff, uh, but not always. So right. what we do is we tend to give both. Talk to me about HER2. So HER2 is uh, the human epidermal growth factor receptor. And uh, it is one of the molecules that's involved in cell growth. What we do is we test for that in exactly the same way, uh, or a very similar way, to the way we do um, ER and PR. It's still done by immune immunohistochemistry, um, but it has a different scoring system. Right. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. Why would it system. make it wouldn't we? any easier? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we have, uh, we have a zero, which is negative. We have a plus one, which is negative. We have a plus two, which is borderline. And then we have a plus three, which is, is positive.
0: And then we know that if it's borderline, yeah. it goes to further testing, it which does. is called the fish testing. It does, uh,
1: which is fluorescent in situ hybridization.
0: OK, thankfully, it is abbreviated to fish.
1: It's fish. <laughs> it's gone fishing.
0: It's gone fishing. It's gone fishing.
1: And the fish, uh, fish is one of those other things in histology which looks great. It does actually look like fluorescent dyes staining different parts of the cell. It is, as a result, quite technical to report. And so we tend to send it out to another specialist lab to do.
0: Right. And it does take a while for it to come back.
1: It does. Um, The problem is at the moment in the UK, there are relatively few labs which are doing it. Um, And of course, lots of patients need it. So it can mean that there is a little delay in getting it. But I think most of our MDT teams tend to you know, try to anticipate as much um, how you may manage the patient in different circumstances of how that comes out. Obviously, it is a problem. As we move forward with technology, what we hope is that we can um, start to kind of bring a lot of these things in house. Right. Um, Fish itself is um, likely to be reduced in her two in the coming years because actually the scoring system for immunohistochemistry is likely to change, which will probably get rid of some of those problems around two plus.
0: Okay, so get rid of that ambiguity and become either more binary.
1: Uh, Probably more binary, yeah, Yeah. that's right. I mean, the thing is, though, that the more we know about cancer, the more we know about the other mutations. And that really is the story of pathology, because we have gone from really simple reports that say cancer, completely excised, full stop, to great big, long, complex reports with lots and lots of data fields that take longer to do, and the more complex to read but they, they incorporate much more information that's relevant to an individual patient.
0: Right. So it's becoming much more complex than yep. years, yeah. you know, a long, long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think the receptor positivity is extremely important because mm. that, as you said, guides us to, you know, say to a patient, well, your tumour is this, Th- these are the characteristics of your tumour. Mm. And therefore, we think you would benefit from, you know, antihormonal treatment like tamoxifen or mm. letrozole.
1: Mm.
0: Or you may greatly benefit from chemotherapy if you have, for example, a triple negative cancer. So, um, you know, it is an extremely important part of their cancer treatment.
1: Well, this is where um, we talked earlier about an anatomical view of breast cancer. And that was the traditional view for a long time. But now, of course, increasingly we look at... What is the receptor status of that tumour? What is it actually doing? Yes, the
0: biology of the tumour. What is its
1: biology? That's right. And that has become all important because a lot of the decisions that are now made are based on that individual patient's tumour biology. That's right.
0: And hence, the more targeted approach to cancer treatment. Exactly. The other thing that we do, obviously, in breast cancer surgery is remove Um, lymph nodes or glands Mm -hmm. from the axilla or Mm -hmm. the armpit. Um, And anybody with an invasive cancer will also have what's called a central node biopsy, Mm -hmm. which is removal of a few of the glands if um, the node at time of presentation is normal. Um, Is the process of analysing lymph nodes the same as what you would do for the breast specimens?
1: It's a little bit different. Um, Well, first up, the, the breast excisions, whether they're a, a breast conserving, whether they're a wide local excision or a mastectomy, they, they tend to be big. Whereas uh, a central node biopsy is usually quite small. Uh, it's usually one or two nodes with a bit of fat around them. So it's maybe a uh, couple of centimetres, p to... T- p size, something yeah, like that. Yeah, something like, yeah. like that. Or maybe smaller uh, sometimes, Most actually. of that's fat. Yes. And within that would be a small lymph node, which yeah. is a few millimetres across. Yeah, it's not very big. Not very big. Um, but what we're trying to do is we're trying to use that sample as a very high yield decision making tool. Yes. So, so very want, important. We want to make the absolute best of that tissue. So what we do is we sample it across its long axis, like slicing up a sausage. Okay. So we don't want right. to slice a sausage in its long plane, Yeah. because then we only just see two faces of sausage, but if we because slice it, it across all the way along it, then we see as much area of sausage as we can. And that's the way we stand the greatest chance of picking up tiny little metastases if they're there. And that means that we can have great confidence that that lymph node or nodes are negative if we don't see anything down the slide, down down the microscope on the slide. And that really helps you guys make a decision as to what's the likelihood of the other nodes being positive. The theory with a, a central node biopsy is that you've taken the node which is the closest to the tumour. So any tumour that's spreading really has to go through that node yeah, to, the get most to all the node. other nodes.
0: The guardian of the, it the axilla. It is the guardian
1: yeah. of the axilla. Yeah. So if we are confident that our way of doing our histology means that when we say it's negative, it really is negative, then that sh- gives you the confidence that you can reassure the patient that there isn't or is unlikely to be any tumour in the rest of the axilla.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's really helpful. And presumably, the slicing that you do is exactly the same in terms of the diameter and the thickness.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's very, not... very thin. Yeah. 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 Well, we don't look at the whole lymph node at that interval. What we do is we'll cut it into um, sections which are about two, two millimeters, two, three millimeters thick. They go into one of our cassettes and then we embed them in wax. Yes. And then what we do is we cut through each of those. And that's what we see is a hair's thinness. And we'll cut several sections through each of those. So, what we then see is a, a whole load of glass slides, uh, maybe eight. And each one is showing us a cross section of the lymph node. Of the
0: lymph node, yeah. And
1: we're looking for tiny little deposits. For ductal carcinoma, the cells are usually quite big and chunky. So, they're relatively easy to see. Whereas for lobular cancer, uh, the cells are quite small and they can look like the background cells in the lymph gland cells in the lymph gland are also very small so we have to then use antibodies with enzymes and stains to stain them up in different colors and that's how we pick them up
0: okay so it's a bit more com- complex complicated. more complex, bit more complex. Yeah. Bit more complex. Yeah. Yeah. so thank you very much i mean that's been really really helpful pleasure um i think it just goes to show that what you do is so important and i think you do all the work in the background because you are essentially the bridge between you know, us seeing the patient at the time of their presentation, mm. and then, you know, at the time of giving them their diagnosis. Um, and all of this work happens in your lab yeah. by yeah. you and, and the rest of your team.
1: Well yeah, I mean, we, we see ourselves as, as absolutely part of the whole team and, and, you know, the way we see things is that we're dealing with our patients, you know, we're not doing something for your patients yes. actually, yes. It's, they're our patients too, and absolutely. we we are doing this, I think, because we've got a real passion for getting to the bottom of what's going on and, and fundamentally helping patients receive the best treatment and the right treatment for them.
0: Yes, and I think you know, the information that you provide is absolutely pivotal in us being able to tailor the best care for our breast cancer patients. Mm. Any other things that you want to add that we haven't covered?
1: Um, well, I think we, uh, really, the, the thing that's changing in, in pathology is that uh, we're moving more and more from traditional morphological uh, work, which is, you know, looking at the shapes of things, essentially, yeah. and the colour of things, to moving into molecular work, and uh, getting to grips with the mutations that we see in different tumours is teaching us so much more about their tumour biology. And we don't all have to be research scientists to mm. be involved in research because our daily work with real patients is teaching us more and more about the patterns that we see. And that's teaching us um, how to better tailor treatment to, to individual patients. And uh, we're having to become much more technical, much more advanced. Right. Um, that's coming in lots of different ways. And, you know, we, we touched a little bit on AI. And whilst I don't think I'm going to be out of a job immediately, I'm really looking forward to a technological future. Um, There's going to be a lot more genetics involved, a lot more um, computing power, uh, but still with a human head on and a real human passion for getting it right.
0: Well, on that note, thank you so much for giving um, me and the listeners your time. Um, It's been really, really interesting, and hopefully it will help lots of our listeners today to better learn and better understand their cancer.
1: Great, hope so. Please Thank say. you very Thank much.
0: You. What an interesting conversation. Thank you so much to Dr. Peter Davis for his time and his expertise. And I hope you have enjoyed this episode as much as I did. It does highlight what happens in the background and all the work that happens that help doctors diagnose the disease, but also help us design the best treatment plan based on that specific tumor characteristic. Different people's cancers are very different, and it is because of the work of our pathologists that it enables doctors formulate specific and patient-centered treatment plans. If you've enjoyed the show and you have a few minutes to spare, then I'd be grateful if you could leave a review on Apple Podcast. This increases the discoverability of the show and hopefully more people can listen to it and so may derive benefit from it. Um, in the next episode, I will be talking about breast examination. And I get this question a lot from people who ask me how best to examine their breast. And so I thought I'll make an episode and walk you through step-by-step step on how to do a breast examination. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to the show so you don't miss out. Thank you so much for listening today and catch up with you in the next episode. Take care. Bye.